Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. The scripture reading this morning will be found in the book of Luke. Chapter 9, we will read verses 46 through 56. I will read the first verse, and after you join it with me on the second verse, continue with me every other verse. That's Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 56. Then there arose a reasoning among them, which of them should be greatest? And Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him, and said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. And John answered and said, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbid him, because he followed not with us. And Jesus said unto him, Forbid him not, for he is not against us, it for us. And it came to pass, when the time was come, that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messenger before his face. And they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, will thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for this opportunity to be here, to get more spiritual food, to learn more of your venture, to learn more of your miracles. We appreciate this, Father. In the Lord Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, well, over the last few months, we have been studying through the Gospel of Luke in a sermon series we've entitled Journey with Jesus, and we're just going through the Gospel of Luke verse by verse studying uh, the life and ministry of our Lord. I've entitled my sermon this morning, A Lesson in Humility. We're going to look at three short stories today in which the disciples display uh, really childlike pride, very uh, immature uh, self-centeredness. And before we jump into that, I want to go back to the last two verses of last week's text because uh, they really set the context for what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, if you remember last week, verse 43 comes on the heels of Jesus healing a demon-possessed boy. He cast the demon out. And verse 43, Luke writes, that uh, gives us the crowd's reaction. It says, They were all amazed at the mighty power of God. But while they wondered every one at all things which Jesus did, he said unto his disciples, Let these sayings sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of men. But they understood not this saying, and it was hid from them, that they perceived it not, and they feared to ask him of that saying. Uh, so Jesus once again tells the disciples that he is going to Jerusalem to die. He is headed there uh, for the purpose of dying on the cross. 
Uh, but the disciples did not understand what he was saying. They, they completely missed the point. They were too intimidated to ask him uh, what he meant. And we've talked before about the fact that these disciples knew that Jesus was the Messiah. They had already been convinced of that. They had seen enough evidence uh, to convince him that Jesus was undoubtedly the promised Messiah. Uh, but their expectations of the Messiah were very different than what Jesus had actually come to do. They, they thought the Messiah would lead a military rebellion to overthrow the Roman government that was oppressing them uh, so that they could basically set up their own independent nation and that Jesus would become a king, that he would set up an earthly kingdom. That was their understanding of the prophecies of Messiah. But of course, we know Jesus did not come to set up an earthly kingdom yet. He had come to do exactly what he said in verse 44, to die on a cross. Uh, he came to be killed on a cross and to rise again from the dead. That was his mission, and that is what the disciples did not understand. While Jesus is telling them this, the disciples are thinking about the kingdom. They are anticipating that overthrow of the Roman government uh, with Jesus as the new king and with these expectations of what they think is about to happen. Uh, they begin to argue about what the pecking order of the 12 disciples is going to look like after the kingdom is set up. And here we begin in verse 46 of our text, which says, there, uh, Then there arose a reasoning or uh, an argument among them, which of them should be the greatest? We see here the first lesson about pride is that uh, pride leads to a lack of unity. Here are 12 men who have committed themselves to be followers of Christ. These should be a band of brothers, people that get along great, and yet they're uh, bickering and fighting over which of them is going to have the highest position in the kingdom. Uh, which of them would, would have the highest throne, the most honor? Uh, Matthew 18 verse 1 says, uh, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? This was a regular dispute that the disciples had. In fact, later in Jesus' ministry, uh, James and John even get their mother involved. This is found in Matthew 20, verse 20. It says, Then came to him, to Jesus, the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on thy left in thy kingdom. So here, James and John's mother comes and asks Jesus uh, to let her two sons be seated right below him in the kingdom. And this really irritated, as you can imagine, the other 10 disciples uh, who had just had enough of these two. And so verse 24 says, when the 10 heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. But Jesus called them unto him and said, ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, every time the issue of who would be the greatest in the kingdom came up, uh, Jesus responded by telling them to be humble and to become a servant. He was constantly trying to correct the pride of their hearts. And he uses himself as an example. He says, I didn't come here to be ministered unto like a king. I came to serve. I came to give my life uh, to die on a cross. Back to our text in Luke, Jesus had just told the disciples that he's going to die soon. That's verse 44, where he tells them, uh, listen carefully, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. And immediately following this, Luke says this argument about who's going to be the greatest comes up among them. While Jesus is thinking about his coming death, these 12 men are arguing about which of them will be the greatest. But rather than correcting their understanding of the nature and timing of the kingdom, 
Jesus corrects their heart attitude, their pride. Verse 47 says, Jesus, perceiving the thought of their heart, took a child and set him by him and said unto them, Whosoever shall receive this child in my name receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me receiveth him that sent me. For he that is least among you all, the same shall be great. Mark's account adds this comment in Mark 9, verse 35. It says, He sat down and called the twelve and said unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. In other words, if you're wanting to be the greatest, if that's your goal, you're going to be a slave in my kingdom, Jesus says. If you're seeking the highest throne and the highest position, you're going to be a servant. Those who lift themselves up will be put down. And then Jesus brings a child over and uses this child as an example of what these 12 men should be like. Uh, Matthew's account records that Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now this would have been shocking to them. You're, You're not even going to enter into the kingdom, much less have a throne unless you be converted and become like a little child. Forget a throne, you're not even going to be a citizen. And what does this mean when he says you need to be converted, you need to be, become like a child? What is that referring to? I think the explanation is given in the very next verse where he continues, Whosoever therefore shall humble, humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. If you want to be great in my kingdom, be humble, he says. See yourself as a little child. At the root of the disciples' problem was their pride. They wanted power, they wanted fame, they wanted to be honored. They were seeking the highest position. And again, Jesus no doubt shocks them when he says to them, you won't even make it in the kingdom if you keep this attitude up. The greatest in the kingdom of God are not those who seek that position, but those who are humble servants. Uh, By the way, the disciples did not learn their lesson. Uh, We'll see later in Luke 22 that this argument comes up again in verse 24. It says, there was also a strife among them. Which of them should be accounted the greatest? These guys just never seem to learn. They never got the lesson. Always fighting about which of them would be the greatest. And you see there the use of Luke's word strife, the nature of this discussion. Pride leads to a lack of unity. This caused strife and indignation. It caused argument constantly among the disciples. Their pride. Not only does pride lead to a lack of unity, but we also see pride makes unnecessary enemies. And we see this in verse 49, when John answered and said, Master, we we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and we forbade him because he followeth not with us. Now this text raises a lot of questions, like who is this guy uh, that is casting out demons in Jesus' name? We know he's not one of the twelve. Who is this? The text does not tell us, but there were others beside the 12 apostles that Jesus gave the authority over demons, at least for a period of time. The 12 were chosen to represent Jesus officially, but there were others that for a period of time also were representatives of Jesus. We see this if you just glance down to chapter 10. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. Jesus sends out 72 men to travel throughout towns and villages and to heal the sick and even to cast out demons. In verse 17, this is them reporting back to Jesus about their trip. It says, The seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. So there were periods of time where others outside the twelve apostles uh, had this authority and had this mission to go and to represent Jesus officially, to preach uh, the kingdom of God, and to cast out demons. 
Whoever this guy was, Luke does not tell us. Uh, He may have been one of the 72 that was sent out. Uh, But either way, that really isn't the point of the text. The point is the attitude of the disciples that they had towards him. They were opposed to what this man was doing simply because of the fact that he wasn't one of them. And I think, too, this, this points to their pride. They thought they were on a higher level than everyone else, because after all, they were, they were the 12 men Jesus had selected as, as his apostles. Now, who does this guy think he is? And perhaps one reason in just a few verses that Jesus does send out those other 72 is to show the 12 apostles they aren't anything special. In and of themselves, they have no power. Uh, Jesus can use anyone. And the authority and power that Jesus had given to the twelve over demons and to heal sick people and to perform miracles as his representatives, that had nothing to do with them. Jesus gave it to them and he could give it to others as well. The apostles wanted this authority and power to be for them alone. They wanted all the spotlight on them. And they come to Jesus hoping that he would side with them in forbidding this man from doing this. And so in verse 50, Jesus responds to this comment by saying, Forbid him not, for he that is not against us is for us. Their self-centered pride led to them opposing anyone who was seen as competition. Again, uh, they they could not stand the fact that there was spotlight on anybody but themselves. They wanted to be looked at uniquely. Pride not only leads to a lack of unity within the group, but pride also leads to unnecessary enemies outside the group. Or maybe if we were going to apply this to our church, I could say pride can lead to a lack of unity within our church, and pride can also lead to us making unnecessary enemies outside of our church. Uh, There's plenty of churches around us that may do things slightly differently than us. They should not be our enemies. Uh, They should be our friends. We should thank God for Bible-preaching churches that may have different uh, standards, different rules. They may do things in their service a little bit differently. Uh, They may preach a little bit differently than me. That does not make them the enemy. And so that pride is what leads to making unnecessary enemies. The disciples wanted to be the greatest, as we've seen. They also wanted uh, all of the spotlight on them. And next we'll see that they also, uh, this pride led to them wanting to make a a spectacle out of anyone who would oppose them. Uh, Verse 51 says, It came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. Uh, By the way, this is a very key verse in the book of Luke. Up until this point, Uh, Jesus has been ministering in Galilee, around the Sea of Galilee. He's been preaching in towns like Capernaum and Nazareth and Nain and those cities all around the lake. And at this point, uh, he is now headed to Jerusalem, the south part of Israel. And this is a trip that will end in his death on the cross. The trip from Galilee uh, to Jerusalem, in fact, is what the rest of the book of Luke is about. Uh, Luke really gives us a detailed account of this journey. It probably only took a few months. Uh, he, He took kind of a meandering route traveling from town to town and and teaching in various villages as he went. Uh, But throughout this trip, the next 10 chapters of Luke, from Luke 9 to Luke 19, all of that is covering this one journey from Galilee uh, to Jerusalem, where he will eventually be killed on a cross. Now, like I said, he, he takes frequent stops, Jesus does, throughout this route, and he teaches in the cities and towns that they're traveling through. Luke 13 describes this period of time. It says he went through the cities and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. So he's headed to Jerusalem, uh, where he knows he's going to die, and he's stopping uh, in the towns along the way. He's spreading the gospel throughout these areas. Uh, this is just a map to help you visualize this. Jesus, most of his ministry was right around Capernaum at the top, uh, around that little lake there that that we call the Sea of Galilee. Um, And now he's traveling all the way down to Jerusalem. 
And so throughout this, this journey of about 80 some miles, depending on which route he would take there, he is traveling uh, toward Jerusalem the whole, the whole way, but he's taking a circuitous route, uh, stopping at various towns and villages along the way, uh, teaching the gospel and spreading the message of his kingdom. But this whole rest of the book is focused upon uh, his death in, the, in Jerusalem. He keeps talking about it. He keeps mentioning it because that's what this is headed to. Uh, one way to think about the book of Luke is the first nine chapters are about Jesus coming, right? He's been announcing the arrival of the, of the Messiah. First with John the Baptist saying, uh, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. He's the forerunner. And then you have Jesus come on the scene and he says, the Messiah has come, I'm here. And so if the first nine chapters are about the Messiah's coming, the last, uh, I guess, 24 minus nine, however many chapters that is, 13, are describing his going. He's headed to his ultimate death. And this, this is all uh, pointing toward his death on a cross in Jerusalem. Now you can see uh, from this map that in order to go from Galilee to where Jesus was living, the northern part there, to Jerusalem, their trip would go through Samaria. And so Jesus sends some messengers to a town in Samaria to make arrangements uh, for food and for lodging to, pre- to prepare for his arrival. We see this in verse 52, which says he sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. So this town does not receive Jesus and the apostles. They say, well, we don't want you here. You're not welcome here. We won't give you lodging. We won't give you food. We won't uh, offer any hospitality to you. Verse 54, when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? Pride leads to outbursts of anger. Uh, These disciples wanted to kill everyone in the village because of their lack of hospitality. They felt insulted by these people. They're and their instant reaction was, let's, let's incinerate all of them. Let's just kill them all on the spot. The disciples were blinded by their pride. They, they wanted to be greater than everyone else. They wanted to be the center of attention. And they became so angry by someone daring to insult them in this way that they wanted to call down fire to destroy them. Once again, Jesus rebukes their attitude. Verse 55, he turned and rebuked them and said, ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Uh, Those two verses in your Bible, depending on what translation you have, they may be worded a little bit differently. Uh, A couple of those phrases are found in some early manuscripts and some are uh, not found in others. So that may be the reason if if you see something different there. Either way, we know that this is what the disciples did not understand. They missed the whole point of Jesus' trip to Jerusalem. It wasn't a military attack. Uh, He wasn't overthrowing the government. He was headed to Jerusalem to die for the salvation of man. We see this elsewhere in Luke. For instance, in Luke 19, this is where Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem. This is the end of his journey that he's beginning here in chapter 9. He makes this statement in verse 10, For the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. And as they heard these things, he added and spake a parable. Because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. Over and over again, Jesus was trying to set them straight about this. He was trying to tell them, I'm not here to set up a kingdom on earth. I'm here to save the lost. I'm here to die on a cross for the salvation of man. Jesus came to earth not to set up an earthly kingdom, but to die on a cross and take the punishment that we deserve for our sins. 
And it's because of his death on, in our place that we can be forgiven and made right with God. That was Jesus' mission, and the disciples completely missed the point. I think the reason they missed the point was they had their own mission. As we've already seen, they were looking forward to ruling. They wanted this high position in the kingdom. They wanted to crush anyone who opposed them. And they wanted to be promoted to a high status in Jesus' kingdom. And I think they were so in love with this idea of power and status and honor that they just didn't understand what Jesus was saying. Every time he tried to tell them that he had come to die and to rise again, it just didn't register. They couldn't let go of the image of Messiah that they had in their minds. And perhaps also they couldn't let go of the image of themselves that went along with it. That if Jesus gets a king, then we as his close disciples surely get a, at least a governorship. We get something high in this kingdom. What they needed was to be converted and become like a little child. They needed to become humble before they could see the nature of God's kingdom. It wasn't about them. It was about Jesus dying and rising to reconcile humanity to God. The reason Jesus came and the message he preached was way bigger than them. But all they could think about was their vision for how they thought things would go. Pride leads to a lack of unity. Pride makes unnecessary enemies. Pride leads to outbursts of anger, and pride also causes us to miss God's purposes. I wonder how often our pride blinds us uh, to what God is doing around us. How often we miss the mission of God because of our pride. We can become so focused on moving up the ladder and reaching whatever status we're seeking after that we're deaf to what Jesus is trying to do. I think of this particularly in my prayer life. So often as I begin to pray, uh, the things that come to mind are all the things I want God to do for me. Uh, God, would you do this and would you do this and would you do this? And it's all selfish. It's all, uh, what can God do for me? The things that I want God to give me, the, things, the, are, the areas of my, that, of my life that I want to improve, the progress that I want to make. And I wonder if God maybe has a different plan for us. He doesn't seem to be doing things the way we think he should in our lives because his plan is very different. Let me recommend that when you pray, when you spend time with God, ask him to show you his will for your life, for your career, for what he wants you to do with the life that he's given you, instead of just asking God to do what you want. And isn't this how he taught us to pray? Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That starts in our lives. God, would your will be done? Prayer is not about you getting God to do your will. It's about you asking God to show you his will. And the only way to pray like that is with humility. It takes humility to let go of your dreams of status and power and wealth. It takes humility to become a servant and ask God what he would have you to do. But I think the reward is worth it. I don't want to stand before God someday and have, have Jesus say to me, you missed the point. You missed what I was trying to do with you. You were so focused on your agenda that you weren't concerned with what I wanted. And a part of what it means to follow Jesus is to let go of your self-centered mindset. We all have this from the time we're a child. One of the, one of the characteristics of an infant is that they are completely self-centered. They think the whole world revolves around them. And if they have the slightest bit of discomfort, they cry and they whine until you fix it. Uh, that's what babies are like. And we all have that in us, that self-centeredness that we have to grow out of. Being a disciple of Jesus means focusing on what God wants not on what you want. Failing to understand the plan of Jesus often leads to a misunderstanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The disciples thought that following Jesus meant power and prestige, a, a high position in the kingdom. But in the end, it cost them their lives. I think many people start attending church because they think 
following Jesus is all about them. If I become a Christian, God will fix my life. He'll fix all of my problems. He'll help me out. He'll give me uh, wealth, health, and prosperity. But the mission of God in this world is not to make us more comfortable in this life, but to rescue sinners from their brokenness and death. And when you understand what God is doing in this world, you can see more clearly your place in his mission. I want to go to one final text before we wrap up, and that is Acts chapter 8. This is uh, several years in the future. So this is after Jesus has died on the cross, he's risen again, and he's ascended up to heaven. The disciples are now spreading the message of the gospel. And we see in Acts chapter 8, Luke writes, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Verse 12, when they that believed uh, Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. This revival took place in Samaria. And I just wonder how many of those people that James and John wanted to incinerate uh, for insulting them ended up being saved years later by the ministry of Philip. I wonder how many converts to Christianity there were that James and John so selfishly wanted to destroy just because they had insulted their pride. But Jesus had not come to destroy them. He had come to save them. I think one of the main applications from this text is to fight against our natural self-centeredness, to instead focus on the will of God. If we're proud, if we're focused on ourselves, we'll miss the point of what God is doing. But if we instead humbly seek to be a servant of God, and fulfill his mission in our lives, that's what true greatness looks like according to Jesus. The one who humbles himself and becomes the servant, he is the greatest in the kingdom of God. Father, I thank you for this text and for the illustrations that you give us of pride and humility, how you work through those who are humble, and how you rebuke those who are proud. I pray that each one of us would take a lesson from this negative example of the disciples that we would fight against that self-centeredness, that we would realize that it's not all about us and that pride can ruin our unity with one another. Pride can make unnecessary enemies with those even outside. Pride can lead to outbursts of anger and perhaps worst of all, pride can lead us to miss the point of what you're doing in our lives. Pray that you help each one of us, God, to be clothed in humility, as your word says, that we would seek to be humble servants of God instead of desiring to be the greatest, the one with the most honor, the one with the most status, help us, God, to not be so focused on ourselves that we miss your will for our lives. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.